0: Thank you so much to the worship team for leading us. You may be seated. Yeah, they put in a lot of work. Our sound people put in a lot of work. Our PowerPoint people do. And if you'd like to be a part of that team, boy, we'd love to have you as well. Um, we're going to have, of course, the ministry fair afterwards outside where you can uh, just see all the different things that are kind of happening in the life of our church and, and find out maybe there's ways that you could get involved. And, uh, and there's definitely lots of, lots of spaces for that. Well welcome here everyone, if you're uh, new to our church or you're just visiting, um, it's really great to have you as well. My name is Dave, I'm one of the pastors here and we're going to be digging in um, to uh, a new series that we're starting in just just a few, well over this fall, but uh, this morning we started a little bit late, we'll probably not be ending quite on time, but that's okay because we started a little late, right? Okay, just be a little bit longer than usual, not much. Not much. Um, you know, as we've been watching the news, uh, or even just look at the news feed on your Facebook account, many of us have been moved, even moved to tears at times, watching the images and videos that give us just the tiniest glimpse of um, the desperation that of the refugees who are fleeing their homes uh, in the Mediterranean region right now. Like, how desperate do you have to be to to leave everything you own behind and pack up your family onto an unsafe boat to try to cross the Mediterranean? How desperate do you have to be to do that? But what's fueling it? You know, at, at heart, hopelessness is the loss of any sense of a good future. Why would countless people in Syria and Iraq and North Africa Why would they risk their lives and the lives of their babies and families on an overcrowded boat? What would make someone do that? As far as I can see, it's when you look ahead at your life and you see the words no future in bold across it. Parents look at their kids and they think there is no hope of a life worth living for these children in this place and we need to leave. It's a picture of lost hope. You know, the great Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky. he put it like this, to live without hope is to cease to live. Now, is that over dramatic? Maybe. But you can catch his point, can't you? If hopelessness, though, is the loss of a future, when you look at your horizon and you see nothing good coming, hope is the opposite. Hope springs from the belief that what lies ahead is good, and is worth living for. Pastor and scholar Eugene Peterson, he puts it like this, the, the way that we conceive of the future sculpts the present. It gives its contour and tone to nearly every action and thought through the day. Is that true? I think it is. What we think about tomorrow, whether it's a sense of hope or hopelessness, that will shape, it will sculpt, how we live and think right now. And hope stands at the center of the Christian faith. But it's not merely wishfully thinking for a positive future. It's not merely, I I hope tomorrow is great. No, our hope, Christian hope has an an object. Our hope is in something. It would be better to say it's in some one. Again, Peterson writes, the Christian faith has always been characterized by a strong and focused sense of future, with a belief in the second coming of Jesus as its most distinctive feature. From the day Jesus ascended into heaven, his followers have lived in expectancy of his return. He told them he was coming back. They continued to believe it. For Christians, it is the most important thing to know about the future. You know, at, at, at this moment, some of us might be thinking that the most important thing to know about our future is what's for lunch. Uh, or more seriously, maybe it's, will I have a job when I graduate? Or what's coming down the line for employment? Uh, will I be able to maintain my job in in the future? Or maybe for some of you young adults, or maybe not just young adults, do I have a hope of a marriage prospect? Those are the sorts of things that we're hoping in. And you know what? They might seem like the most pressing issues of your future, but they aren't. They're very important. They matter. But they actually pale in comparison to knowing that Jesus is coming again to make all things new to make things right, to judge sin and evil for what it is, and to bring about God's glorious future reign. What we believe about that, about Jesus and his coming, that draws a line in the sand for us and asks us, will you participate in the life of God or are you going to keep working against it? What we believe about the future and what God will do in the future, that will shape how we live in the present. It'll shape how we speak, what we do with our time and and energy. It'll shape whether we have a sense of purpose or not. So here's why thinking clearly about God's future matters so much. If we drop our eyes from God's big picture of what he's going to do in the future, we will lose our nerve to follow Jesus, especially when things get hard. We'll lose our nerve to maintain our faithfulness to Jesus and his good news in our day-to-day lives if we miss what's actually on our horizon. Yes, what we think about the future will shape deeply how we live in the present. For a little band of new believers in, in the northern Greek city of Thessalonica, they need to focus again on their hope, their only true hope. They need to be reminded of God's good future, and that will shape how they live in the present. And you know what, folks? We need that same reminder as well. Living in hope. Today, we're going to begin our fall series, Looking at Hope. Let's pray as we dig in. Father God, we thank you that you called the Apostle Paul, and you shaped him into the sort of man And by your spirit, you empowered him to write this letter to this little church two millennia ago, and it's still speaking to us today. Encourage our hearts over this fall series. Encourage our hearts today. Help us to hear what you want us as the church today to hear through this text. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, we're going to open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I'm going to, this is not on my notes, but I'm going to make a little plug for like a text version of a whole Bible. If you have one, open up there. If you have an app on your phone, you can open that too. But I've been, I've been encouraging our young adults to bring their Bibles to church, their physical Bibles, because here's the, here's the reason why. Not because your, text, your, your phone app isn't a good version or something, I'm sure it's a great one, but when we don't have the larger context in front of us, we can forget that the text we're reading is a part of a much larger story. And so working with a text Bible, I think is really important, the whole thing in your hands. So that's just my encouragement. So the rest of this series, I'll follow, everyone will have their Bibles under their arms. You'll be comparing the sizes, and it'll be, it'll be wonderful. So just bring your Bible to church next week. And if you've got it now, open up. If you don't, it's gonna be on the screen behind me as well. Paul, writing them this down, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you, so Paul is on his second missionary journey, this is kind of in the late 40s likely, Um, and they've just been, if you read in Acts chapter 17, go home and read that, that'll kind of set up what's happening here, they've just been to Philippi, chapter 16 of Acts, and uh, they got beat up there, but they planted a church. They've got a church in Philippi that kind of got chased out of that city. Then they've been working their way down, and now they're at Thessalonica. And Paul, as we find out in in Acts 17, does what he always does. He starts with his own people, the Jewish people. He goes to their synagogue, and he opens up the Jewish scriptures, and he explains from the Hebrew Bible that Jesus is the Messiah, and that, as, as he says here, that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Paul's central message that Jesus, Messiah means king or ruler, has come. The Hebrew Bible itself says he would die and be raised again. Now it's time to trust Jesus who has done God's rescuing and trust him alone. That's Paul's message. Some of the Jewish people said, yeah it really is, and they put their faith in Jesus, and a church was planted, and many, it says many of the Greek, um, or the the Gentiles, the non-Jews, also put their faith in Jesus, so it's primarily a Gentile church that's planted, but many of the Jewish people did not like Paul's message one bit, and they actually end up driving Paul and his associates out of the city. Now, They get out of Dodge. Paul hits Corinth, kind of Athens. You'll you'll see he hits Athens on the way. But then he ends up in Corinth, and he's going to be there for a couple of years planting a church in Corinth. And here's where he writes his letter to the Thessalonians. Now, the church is less than a year old, probably, at this point. They are brand new believers, and Paul wants to keep encouraging them in their faith. Even though they're brand new believers, look what he can say of them. Verse 2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers, we remember before God our Father your work produced by faith. Notice it's not the other way around. (laughs) Your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice the triad there. Faith, love, and hope. We see that again. Yeah, Paul will write to that Corinthian church that he's planting right now later, 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love, the grace of Jesus' love. You'll see that that's central, Paul says, to the Christian faith. But notice this. These are not vaguely spiritual, free-floating kind of ideas. Their faith. Their trust in Jesus does something. What does it produce? Work. It gets them to do something on the real ground in the material world. And their love, their love, well, that was a fuzzy feeling. Notice how he says fuzzy feeling right there? (laughs) Of course not. Their love leads them to labor, to working for the good news of the gospel, to loving each other in the church and their neighbors beyond. And all of this is fueled by their hope. That's where their endurance, their stick to itness to be on mission with Jesus, that's where it comes from. And notice this other thing. They have a sense that they have been called by God. Listen to what Paul writes here. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God. I love that part. The most important thing about them is that they're loved by God. that they know that. Brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. And he has chosen you, Paul writes, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power the Holy Spirit in deep conviction. Paul looks at this group of Christians, and he sees that they've responded to the message of Jesus, not because simply the words he spoke, but because the power of the living God came upon them and opened their hearts and changed their hearts. N.T. Wright comments like this. He's a biblical scholar, theologian. He says, a strange power gripped them. That power that Paul would, would tell them was the Holy Spirit at work they would suddenly understand what he was saying. It would grasp their hearts and minds. Um, I met a student at TRU this, uh, this Friday when I was there on campus, and, and he, he came to Christ this summer. And he told me, I said, what's your story? How did that happen? And he kind of explained all the wrestling and big questions he had and all that kind of thing. He said there was one day that it just clicked. God's spirit came into me, and I understood, and I was a Christian. It is God at, God does his thing. That's who saves people. Our part is to be faithful in telling people the good news of God's love and forgiveness in Jesus, and then God does the work. Amen is right. That should encourage us as we share our faith with others too. It's not really how great we are. It's what God does. Here's what else we have to see. God chose this community. That's clear because the spirits work in them. And it reminds us that God wanted this church in this place at this time in history for His good purpose. That's also true of Summit Drive Church, folks. We are here, planted at this time and place because God has been at work. And He wants us here to accomplish His good purposes in the city of Kamloops. That's why we could never simply be an inward-focused social club. God has formed us as a community, called us into relationship with his son Jesus for a purpose, to bear witness to the rest of our city that God truly has come in Jesus and is renewing all things. We have been called to bear this good news in our city, in our actions and in our words. Together, that's what we've been chosen for. This is why we need to deeply depend on God in prayer, that we need to keep Coming to him and realize we've been called into this vibrant, dynamic relationship. And prayer is the thing that keeps us rooted in in our faith in Christ. And we listen to God through the scriptures. Uh, If you don't have a daily reading plan, you can find one online. You can talk to us. We would love for you to keep going and listening and opening your hearts to what God is saying through the text. He inspired it. He gave it to us to hear him. So hear him, folks. We need each other. We need each other to encourage each other to love and to, to live out the holiness uh, that God has called us to, to be reflections of, of God our Father in, in His holiness and grace. So God has planted us here too. We can't miss out on that call. So this year, let's encourage each other to be and do what God is calling us to be and do. Let's labor As a result of the love that God has shown us, let's work because of our faith in Jesus. And let's continue to have the endurance to do that through the hope that springs from Jesus. Now, good? We're all tracking together. Okay. The power that gripped them is God's Spirit, right? It fills them with joy, even in intense suffering. Look what Paul says next. You know how we lived among you, Paul and his associates. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Thessalonians became a model, but how? Well, they imitated the way of life that Paul set for them as an example. A way of life that was about giving of themselves deeply for the sake of those around them, spending themselves. Paul worked at a job while he was there so that he could support himself and then just preach the message. He worked really hard to make the, the gospel known. We find out that the joy that they have as well is given in severe suffering. But why suffering? And and What kind? It's it's possible that there was physical violence involved. Paul and and his associates have already experienced physical violence. That's that's possible. He doesn't say that's the case, but it's possible. But here's some other things we need to consider. Um, In North American culture, some of our highest values are going to be around health care and the economy, right? Like, what's life if we don't have good health to enjoy it? And what's having good health to enjoy it if we don't have the time and money to really enjoy it? Those are North American cultures. Those are our highest values, typically. not Hopefully not Christians in North American culture, but that's North American culture. In Greco-Roman culture, it was different. Their highest value was honor, and the thing to be avoided was shame. People would rather lose their health and lose their financial security if they could keep their honor. Thessalonians, when they turned to Jesus that meant they became an object of shame in their culture. Why? A couple factors. Thessalonica was steeped in idol worship, the worship of anything other than the one true God. Day-to-day life in the Greco-Roman world revolved around trying to win the favor of all of this pantheon of gods to try to appease them. See, they weren't kind and benevolent gods. They were seen as kind of fickle, often mean-spirited, and so you couldn't do enough to appease them. So if you're going on a business trip, you've got to make sure that you hit the altar to a certain God and try to appease them with a sacrifice. Your son or daughter is getting married. Again, a different God you'd have to go to and appease this God with sacrifices. And the whole way of life in the Greco-Roman world focused around idol worship. The social fabric of the city was based around pagan festivals and the worship of idols. All of your business connections would be made once you're in that kind of scenario. If you turned away from that set of beliefs and practices, you turned away from false gods to worship the true God, you're turning away from your whole way of life previously. You're turning away from your culture. In fact, your behavior in turning away is critiquing those other gods, and that whole way of life. And as a result, it it seemed like they were dishonoring Roman culture, and so they were written off. Their culture disowned them, dishonored them. But I want to make the argument the same is true today. Idols are no less prevalent in Kamloops than in ancient Thessalonica. Everyone is worshipping something. Everyone's making something or someone their greatest good we don't get to choose if we worship we only get to choose who or what we worship everyone worships all the time idolatry at its heart doesn't really have to do with the statues it has to do with loving something other than the most high god as the first and best in your life it's taking good god-given things like sports uh, health our family our relationships, money, status, good things. But it's taking these good things and making them our ultimate thing. The thing that we find our, our sense of security in, that, that we say, this is what makes me who I am. It's taking good things and making them our God. It kind of, and, and in fact, sin is, at, at root, sin is idolatry, that's what it is. It's worshiping something other than the one true God. It's saying to God, God, you know what? I need this more than I need you. I I want this more than I want you. In fact, I love this more than I love you. When we turn from our idolatry to serve the living God, that will mean a whole life change because it changes our values. It affects our decision-making. It moves us to follow the pattern of life that Jesus himself held, which was to pour himself out in love for the sake of others. It means a turning away from self-centered motivation to other-centered motivation. It means turning from pride or fear, especially fear of those who are different than us, to love. Again, loving means pouring yourself out for the sake of others. It means compassion toward not only our neighbors next door, but our global neighbors as well. Our motivation is to live and serve and love the one true God, to live for Him. And that changes what we're going to do with our money, with our time, with our energy. So the Thessalonians, they are suffering greatly as a result of what? Being socially excluded being told that they're crazy because no one would ever say what Paul said. Um, They're seen as outsiders now in their hometown. But also, there's a new false god on the scene, and this will become really important later on in the book of Thessalonians, so let's unpack it about here now. Caesar Augustus, that is the Roman emperor who was in power when Jesus was born, right? Read Luke 2, you'll read his name there. And when he came to power, and in the middle of his power... His adoptive father, Julius Caesar, when he died, uh, Augustus said, he was such a great man. He led this whole, look at what he did. He must be a god. And so there is now this degree that we should worship, pay honor and tribute to the god, Julius Caesar. So, hail um, Caesar. Uh, That was sort of like, Caesar is Lord was the saying that would be going through the Roman Empire during the time that Jesus was born. But when Augustus died in AD 14, the same thing happened. People said, well, Augustus is, was the emperor who's died, and now we must worship Augustus. But then something happens. There's, there's a change in, you know, toward the mid-first century. Not only was the emperor who died worthy of worship, they said, wow, whoever's leading this whole empire, they must be God. And so they started worshiping the current emperor, Cities were falling over themselves to pay tribute and honor to the emperor now. Because this is the guy who holds all the strings. You, you better stay in the good books of this guy or you'll be ousted. It, it, could, be, it could be disastrous. The Thessalonica was no exception. It was known as being a city who, who gave of themselves deeply to worship The emperor to pay him honor and tribute, and then Paul and his associates show up and they say, Actually, guys, there's only one true God. Now, other Jewish people had said that before. That wasn't new. But Paul goes farther. He says, The one true God sent his son, the Messiah, and remember the word Messiah means king or ruler, and he died for the sins of the world, and God raised him back to life again, which would sound really weird to Roman ears. They thought bodily resurrection was disgusting. So there's a whole lot of reasons why people might be tripped up by this message. But then it says he's been raised to life and he will come again as the true king of the world. No one had ever said that before. And you can see the problem, can't you? In Acts 17.6, we read the accusations that the Thessalonians who didn't like Paul and his message brought against them. Here's what it says. These men they've caused problems, trouble all over the world. They've now come here, and Jason, who would be a new convert to Christianity, probably, at the, and the church met in his home, likely, he's welcomed them into his house. Hospitality in the ancient world is really important. If you welcome somebody, it means that you accept them and their message and what they're about, in, in many ways. So they, and that's what it says next, they are all doing what? Defying Caesar's decrees. the Caesar's got to be worshipped, right? Saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The Thessalonians, like Jason, mentioned in this verse, they were taking a great risk in turning from their idolatry to serve and love the one true king. This was seen as treason against Caesar. So you see, these believers had taken a great risk. They lost their honor. The greatest value in their culture was gone for them. They were shamed by the world around them. And just as an aside, I think if we follow Jesus and we adopt his values, we will probably be dishonored in our culture too, which sets itself up against God and his ways. And so we should expect that we would be dishonored that would be a normal part of christianity in the north american context and it will become more and more normal so if you want to follow jesus you should expect to be dishonored and shamed as well that will be part of our life and that's why we need each other to keep encouraging ourselves uh, to follow jesus even when things get hard look at verse eight that's what paul does next the lord's message rang out from you not only in macedonia and Achaia; your faith in god has become known everywhere Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. The reputation and honor of the Thessalonians may have been trashed by their neighbors, but Paul says, because of your love, your faith, your hope, and the endurance and and work that you've produced, you have become known. Maybe in your culture, you've been trashed, but among the other churches, you've been highly honored. Jesus has honored you, forgiving of yourself to follow him in love. How did they become a model? They loved deeply, even though they were suffering deeply. They didn't just love each other, they live. Their non, love their non-Christian neighbors too. Look at 3.12. This is 1 Thessalonians 3.12. Paul says, May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. Yes, we can't obey that if we're not in community, of course. We need to love each other. But then, and everyone else. Meaning, everyone else, no exception. So their hope, They could follow Jesus, even to great cost to themselves. Their hope is the assurance that Jesus will return. And that makes it possible to keep loving their neighbors, even though their neighbors are disowning and dishonoring them. See, they believe that God will one day put all things back to rights. He will make things the way they were always made to be, and so they can just relax and get on with loving their neighbors and sharing the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 10 again. They tell how you turned from God to God, from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath? Is there a belief that Jesus would bring about God's gracious reign, His reign of peace and love and justice, that enabled them to follow Jesus even when things were hard. But we might ask, well, Dave, what, what about the wrath? How can we say that God is loving and speak of God's wrath? Aren't the love and the wrath kind of opposites? Aren't those working against each other? My answer is not at all. In fact, the goodness of God and the justice of God are not opposed to each other. How could we possibly call God good if he didn't oppose and deal with the evil in our world? If he just turned a blind eye to it? We look just back over the last century at all the things that have happened in our world or just even the current situation with ISIS in the Middle East and the fallout from all of their terror. How could we possibly call God good if he didn't act to call evil what evil is and to judge it for what it is? God's wrath is his settled opposition to anything that distorts or destroys his good creation to make way for God's perfect future kingdom reign, for his coming kingdom, God will have to remove the evil. But then there's a real problem for me, and actually for you too. See, I know that evil isn't just out there. It's not someone else's problem. It's mine. My own heart has been poisoned with the propensity to self-centeredness, but more than that, to greed, and dare I even say, to violence. So the big question becomes, how can God end all evil without ending me? Paul's answer is at the heart of the storyline of the Bible, that God himself, out of love, takes on human flesh. His son Jesus becomes one of us. And out of deep love for us, Jesus, the one who lives a sinless life, gives up his life on a Roman cross. His life is broken apart to pay for the sin that my life and my sin have earned for me. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus is able to give us his sinless record. He changes it, quid pro quo, this for that. He takes my guilt, I take his righteousness we forgiven, restored, put in right relationship with God. Because of Jesus, God can and will end evil without ending us. That makes my heart leap with joy. Here's how N.T. Wright sort of summarizes this chunk. There would come a time of great distress, a time for which the only words would be wrath and fury, this strange and dark reaction of a loving and holy God to all that distorts and defaces His world. But though this time of wrath will surely come, Jesus himself will deliver his people from it. That was central to the hope in the first, Christian hope in the first century, and it remains so today. My hope, our hope as a church, is in the gospel of Jesus. That though God will end evil one day, because of Jesus, he won't have to end us. We can be in the loving relationship with him we were made for. Here's our practical point What's the natural outflow? of this hope? Well, knowing that Jesus will one day return and finally and fully usher in God's kingdom frees us. Free? How? Here's how. I don't need to be anxious about the future. And that frees me from self-centeredness in the present. If Jesus will return and set up God's good, gracious future reign, I don't need to build my own kingdom on my own terms in the here and now. He is building something far more glorious, everlasting. And actually, as a creature, I was made to live under his gracious rule. How could I do a better job of this than God can do? I don't have to work for myself anymore. I can get on God's page and work on what he's doing. That is freeing for us. We know our future is secure. It's good. It's better than I could ever create for myself. But there's more. This one's really important. Believing that God will one day judge all evil frees us from the need to seek revenge. See, belief in judgment day keeps us from the need to take things into our own hands, to make sure that justice is done on our terms. For the Christian, for the Thessalonians, they could work at the mission that God had called them to even in the face of a culture that was hating on them. They could keep loving even in the face of being dishonored. Why? Because they know what's coming. And we can too. How we envision the future will shape how we live in the present. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the American poet, he wrote a poem called uh, Christmas Bells. In fact, it got turned into a Christmas carol. We sing it sometimes. He wrote it on Christmas Day, 1863. You need to know this is right in the middle of the American Civil War. Uh, Longfellow's son, kind of against his will, against Longfellow's will, he signed up to fight in the Civil War, and he got really badly injured in November, just before this Christmas. Longfellow also lost his wife in a house fire not long before that. How'd you be feeling that Christmas? So he goes, where's the hope? He takes his pen and he puts it to paper, and this is near the end of Christmas bells. He says this, it was as as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent. He's talking about the violence of the war that he saw around him and what it was doing to homes and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong. It mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep. What did they say? God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Folks, right in the middle, we might be tempted in the middle of the despair we see in the world to say with Longfellow, for hate is strong. It mocks the song of peace on earth. We might be tempted to say, what's the point of working for the good when it seems that evil keeps outstripping the good, it seems like it's winning out, maybe just try and use all I have for myself, enjoy this life while I can enjoy it, forget the rest of the world, I'm going to live on my own terms, but no, Christian hope says in the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones, God will one day make everything sad come untrue, can you hear with Longfellow, the peal of the bells, Yes, more loud and deep, God's not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Can you trust that God will repair what we, his loved but fallen humanity, have broken? That is the hope that Longfellow fixed his heart on. That in the face of hate and evil, he would believe in the goodness of God and the good future that God was bringing, and that changes how we live, how we think right now. Our hope that God's love is stronger than evil, even in all the evil our hearts can dream up, it leads us to action. It means that in the face of the tremendously difficult and confusing refugee situation, we can live with hope, and in fact, we can be agents of hope. God is not sleeping through this one. He's calling us to respond. He's chosen us, his church, Summit Drive, to be, as we sang this morning in that song, we are the hope on earth. That is literally true. Jesus said to his disciples, um, John 16, help me out here. You will do greater works than these, Jesus says. Why? Because there's like two billion of us. And we've got the same spirit of God in our hearts to work for, toward his kingdom rule. Imagine the church released for mission to be and do all God has called us to be. That is who we are. We are literally the hope of God on earth for your neighbors. They need you. They need us. If we don't be the church, there is no other plan that God has. That's who he's made us to be. I'm gonna ask Vanessa Purvis to come and she's gonna share some of how our kids are uh, gonna respond um, and have responded in the face of um, what seems like hopelessness and they've responded with hope. Is that thing gonna come on? No, it's not. Let me me give you this Uh one. Uh, Work with it. Sure. It's red, that means the battery's dying. Go for it anyways.
1: Okay, can anyone hear me? Yes. Okay, over the past year at Awana, myself and the other leaders have really felt a need to focus more on missions. We've been talking to the kids about current events facing many people around the world who live in difficult circumstances. Most of us here living in Kamloops cannot imagine living in a place where there is no safe, clean water supply or where our parents have died of AIDS or have even abandoned us or where we have no Bible to tell us of God's love and hope in our language. We are trying to inform the Awana Clubbers that the world is bigger than Kamloops or British Columbia or even Canada and there are real life-dependent needs out there. And most importantly, that we can help. We can help by praying for them, but also in practical ways, even right down to the three year olds in our club. You may remember that last November we gathered school supplies and hygiene supplies for Mennonite Central Committee. MCC sends these kits around the world to people who are in desperate need of them. Last year they sent approximately 58,000 of these kits to places including Jordan. Bosnia, Syria, Serbia, North Korea, Lebanon, and Iraq. Arowana Club is starting up again for fall on September 24th, and we are again collecting supplies for hygiene kits. These kits are super simple. They consist of a bar of soap, a pair of nail clippers, a hand towel, and a toothbrush. Can you imagine living in a place where you don't even have that? These kits are often presented to children living in refugee camps and sometimes to women living in rural education centers to help encourage them to use them and teach their families. Kits are provided to people in need due to natural disasters, violence or severe poverty. MCC goes where most of us can't go to spread the news of God's love and encourage people that they are not alone or forgotten. So you are probably wondering how you can help, and I am here to help you with that. Come to our table out on the lawn, the Awana and Kids Ministry table, and pick up one of the colored pieces of paper that I have out there. It'll say a bar of soap or a toothbrush or nail clippers or hand towel, and bring those items back to church next week or any time up to October 4th. Uh, we'll have a big collection box out there in the foyer and everything donated will be taken to an MCC drop-off center in Calgary at Thanksgiving. Thank you for giving you giving of your time and resources for this mission opportunity and you can also see me at the table to volunteer for our club. Thanks.
0: Thank you again and for the kids who are working on this together. There are acute needs that need to be met on the ground right now. But many of you, if you're like me, you've been wondering over the past weeks, like, can we do something maybe kind of long-term or, or, or part of the, a, a bigger sort of thing? Like, surely a church of our size could sponsor a refugee family, couldn't we? Well, one of our young adults asked me about it a week and a half ago with, with dead seriousness, what are we going to do, Dave? And I said, Anthea? you got to write a proposal, and I'll bring it to the board. It's coming up right away. Let's let's put this on paper. Let's get this thing in motion. And the board looked at it, and they were discerning the spirit and going, yeah, we, we need to we need to pursue this. So there's a motion before the board that by next board meeting, we're going to say, yeah, we can go ahead and, and start working to sponsor a refugee family uh, coming up. And um, and that will mean a, a real commitment financially, but not only financially. About, about $30,000 of our budget will have to say, This is to bring a family to be a part of uh, our community here in Kamloops. We have Arabic speakers in our midst, which is wonderful. It can help with kind of that transition. But we can, together make a difference in this kind of way. If you're willing to be a part of a team that would help Anthea out with that, I'm kind of making you responsible now. You said it, so come and talk to Anthea. She'll be at the young adult booth, and I've already signed people up to help, by the way, in last service, so um, we always work in teams at Summit. If we're doing something in ministry, it's in a team. you got to build a team. Go and see Anthea if you'd like to be a part of a team uh, that would bring a refugee family, and uh, we're going to be working towards supporting that as a church Um pray about that too, that that, that, uh, the board as they discern that would be um, prepared to, to do what we need to. Christian hope, our hope, isn't wishful thinking. It's not, you know, the future is friendly. Christian hope is substance. It's ultimately in the person, the person of Jesus who is who died and rose again in real history, who ascended bodily to his Father in heaven and who will come from heaven one day again to set up God's gracious rule. And that, the reality that we've been loved by God and chosen by him for a good purpose, motivates us to work toward his good future. We'll speak a lot more about what what, what heaven is all about and what God is doing but I think C.S. Lewis, I'm just going to end with this generally has connected our hope and the real world change that it calls us to. Here's what he writes hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that continually looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think a form of escapism or wishful thinking but one of the things that a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you'll find that the Christian who did the most, the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most about the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the middle ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think about the life after this life, I would wanna put it, that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you Your son, Jesus, is our living hope, as the apostle Peter put it. That you are the one we hope in. Your return is sure. And our hope is fixed on what you're going to bring with you. Let us be a part, God, of what you're bringing to bear, that what you will bring to bear. Let us be those who pattern our lives as the church in Thessalonians did, after the apostles and after you yourself, Jesus. Empower us this week as we go through our workplaces to keep our eyes fixed on the broader horizon of the good future that you're bringing to bear. And let us work to see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we